we are unable to see beyond what we know. But that's not always been the case. So we have the inability to dream. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be live at Northumbria University with international relations students, sociology students, politics students... Criminology students. We've got all the social scientists. You say yeah, we're here in Newcastle. We're in no- sunny Newcastle. Sunny Newcastle, though it was raining as we arrived. <laughs> sorry, sorry, guys. Um, this is really exciting for us because this episode will be going out as a live podcast and recording, but also because we haven't done that many of these um, sessions since before the pandemic now. We've done a couple, yeah. but not too many. Um, and it's really great to kick off what we hope will be a few more of these in the year ahead um in somewhere like newcastle um we think that as a show we try our best to not be kind of like southern or london centric but uh, it's, it's hard not to be that because we record there that's where tisa and i have been doing our phds um it's where tisa grew up i'm from the west midlands but it's where we've done a lot of our stuff but we do really try and make an effort whether it's with our guests or whether it's the actual us physically going outside of London. We do try and do that, so it's really important for us. Yeah, to kind of see, the, well, to get out there, and especially for someone who's London-centric, like, I didn't realise there was life outside the M25 until very recently. Which, uh, <laughs> which of course, is something that kind of dominates the discourse when we think about politics as well. And one thing that Surviving Society, what we try to do as our intellectual project, as our creative scholarly project, is to try and show like where our solidarities lie as we know like things like discourses around the north south divide very much dominate how the political arena push us political arena push us against each other and what we try and do on the show is always try and focus on solidarities familiarities similarities common but commonality. yeah but i think it's trying to like hear different voices right yeah so push back against those kind of established narratives yeah. that we have especially like the north south divide yeah around poverty all those kind of things there and you can only do that but well now we can do that by meeting the people but also by podcasting by yeah. technology so, yeah. <laughs> exactly Segway. You like that segue. segue. i do like that segue tea so the session that we're going to be doing today or the podcast we're going to be recording today is titled love hope and resistance podcasting local and global theories of race and class during times of crisis we would like this session to be interactive um tiso and i do talk a lot so please do <laughs> feel free to either raise your hand or interrupt us it's really hard to describe short hall <laughs> one of our favorite theorists and one of the people that is very much grounded in what our intellectual project is at surviving society is Stuart hall and usually when we're talking about him on the show i would pick out or Tiso would pick out some of his quotes that are very much hopeful and that are talking about um, difference, culture, art, music in ways that is about bridging together what uh, society or what the structures or what governments seek to kind of uh, present as something which divides us. Like we're always trying to find like little snippets of hope or little snippets of wisdom from Stuart Hall to help guide us through times of crisis. But on this occasion, given that there is so much madness going on um, in society at the moment, I do think sometimes it is quite good to pick out moments when Stuart Hall in particular, and obviously other theorists of race and class, were unsure about the terrain or unsure about the conjuncture, because we are all very much unsure about what is happening right now, what politically, what our arena is, where does hope lie, where are the solidarities, because there is so much crises. So just to start off, before we get into the love, hope and solidarity, it's a quote from Stuart Hall in an interview he did with Laurie Taylor in 2006. So Stuart said, I think things are stuck. I'm not so disillusioned as to think history is finished, But I do think that the balance of social forces are very powerfully against hope. Now, if we think about what's happening in 2006, we've got two years before the financial crash is coming. Have we got credit crunch yet? Credit crunch yet? Yeah, yeah. So that's two years years. before. 
we're about four years into the war on terror. Yeah. We're in the second term of a new Labour government. We've got, quote-unquote, crisis of multiculturalism. We've got the whiteness stuff being re- reasserted within sort of BBC and the mm-hmm. media. They think that this is just before the white season, mm-hmm. like all that stuff. And I think, although, like, Stuart Hall and other theorists of race and class remind us that no one time is the same, but there are similarities. I think that at this point, like, there is a lot of crises happening. But if we think about this moment in comparison to now, it is quite, it is quite hard to generate any kind of um, similarities, familiarities with it, because we are, there are so many different crises, not just happening with how, um, with race, class, global inequalities, global capitalisms, but also, like, we've, we've had a pandemic. We've, we're seeing a rise in fascism across Europe. Like, it's... So if Stuart's feeling... If Stuart was feeling down at this point, what's he going to be saying in, in big, big 2022? Once you're in it, it, it seems so all-encompassing, so oppressive. And I think because we've had a few firsts, right? So in our lifetime... It, well, in historically, there's never been a lockdown, right? So this, this is the first... Do we have the conceptual tools to deal with what has happened? We're struggling emotionally, we're struggling physically, and we're trying to get to grips with a world that's different. We've never had a lockdown before. The global north and the global south all stopped. Mm. Capitalist production stopped. That's a first, right? Mm. So how, do, how are we dealing with this? And I, I, don't, I don't even want to use the word crisis because it tends to be overblown and, and sometimes out of context. But how do, you, how do we kind of deal with this world that's completely different to what we all are being taught here, right? So essentially, when we're talking about whether it's politics or, or IR, we're talking about essentially the same kind of enlightenment base that we're starting from. But is this applicable to the world that we exist in now? Given the pushback from the margins, from the pushback from former colonies, the pushback from the shift in global power, the shift in capital, all these things are completely different now. Are the theories that we have fit for purpose? Are our understandings of the world ready for this new world that's taking shape? Look at the, the idea of how we communicate, for example, podcasting. That's, that's a new form of communication. It's something our parents don't understand. Mm. It's something I struggle to understand. You know, so it's, it's how do we do this new, new, it's dealing with this new reality and maybe we need new terms. So the idea of centering love and care and how we deal with these worlds is a different way of approaching this, man. So maybe... Mm. No, you know? definitely. I think that's really powerful, see. And I think, just coming back to so, what Stuart Hall was saying here in terms of the balance of, the balance of social forces are very powerfully against hope. One of the things that we really try and do on the show, obviously many other theorists very much were inspired by, is what are the things that those that seek to harm us or those that seek to cause the most harm or those that seek to, call, that, to gain the most power, what are the things that they can't have? What are the things they don't have? What are the things that we can take back? And I think one of the things that Stuart Hall is talking about here in terms of hope is that, like, living in a in a society what you were just talking about Tiso in all these different crises or the political calamities to have hope like where does the hope come from and if you live in a, a country or have a government like the one that we have like it is very hard to find those bits of hope within the mainstream but what we try and do and what many others like like us do in a very very small way is try and illuminate those pockets of hope not in a sense to create some kind of culture of political apathy like we need to be angry we need to be frustrated we need all those things but to try and find the gaps in the terrain the gaps in the terrain where the hope lies and that's obviously what Stuart said later in his life as well like the gaps in the terrain as much as we can be in crisis there are gaps and those gaps are where you find the hope if you look back over time and you see where hope it's kind of paired with resistance. So you look at the kind of the struggle of, say, the colonial, say, the, uh, the slaves mm-hmm. in slavery. If you look at the... Which we're going to come on to, aren't we? <laughs> which we'll yeah. come on to that. You come look at how <laughs> they pair hope with resistance. Mm-hmm. So it's something that kind of goes together, right? Mm-hmm. So if anyone wants to come in on this, um, <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the things... I'm, well, you know, 
Tiso and I have spoken um, quite a lot in this introduction about a few kind of existential things, but also some particulars. But what do you feel like are some of the political issues that you feel like dominate your conversations amongst your peers at the moment? Hi, I'm Lena. I'm an associate professor here at Northumbria University. And as of this morning, one of the things that are very much being talked about very, very depressingly is Third World War. Uh, because obviously there's been talk from uh, the Kremlin this morning as of we are might be heading towards the World War. So that's depressive enough uh, as a topic that is dominating conversations today. Um, I'm Diany. I'm a senior lecturer here. Uh, one of the things that politically my peers are talking about are things like the cost of living and generational injustice, that sort of thing. <laughs> Hi, um, my name is Joseph. Um, I'm an international relations, security and conflict master student. Um, I would probably say one of the most important issues that is in my friendship group would be like, LGBT issues, um, especially among the greater political discourse. I mean, you have like um, LBC, uh, LBC radio. Every time they have a person on that, they always go, can you define what a woman is? And it's just misconstrued and a really important debate that should be had, and it's just... Annoying. Thank you. My name's Alan. I'm also an MA international relations student, and I feel like um, two related issues that crop up a lot are the rise of the right, who are now adopting a lot of populist tactics and uh, frequently use a rather distorted interpretation of what free speech is, um, adopting absolutist perspectives on it, which are uh, crassly inaccurate. Um, and also that a lot of people now consider themselves quite centrist, whereas because the open windows arguably shift, they're really sort of quite right-leaning. And there are a lot of specious uh, arguments used by the right in their sort of populist um, rhetoric. They'll usually use things that sound very persuasive and emotive and seem fine at a glance, but don't stand up to further argument. But of course, they're keen on cherry-picking responses from those less well-versed to give appropriate responses and they'll say, look, these arguments are solid. It's, um, it feels like there's a lot, of, um, a, a lot of a shift in that direction and there's um, not enough intellectual self-defense to sort of work against it. So entertainers are sort of drowning out informers, I think. And I'll just add that another point of conversation is very much about how welcoming or not the UK is to migrants and refugees. I'm Sharmin, I'm an IRP student at International Relations and Politics, and I would say probably one of the biggest disagreements I have among my peers is Palestine and settler colonialism. It should not be that hard to condemn apartheid, but this country makes it so hard, like with IHRA definitions and things. So we've just listened to some really important such crucial political provocations that we feel like we're discussing a lot amongst our peers, our friends, our colleagues. And at the moment, at the time of recording this live podcast, it is the end of April. These lecture slides, so this lecture slide um, was put together in December, which I think is interesting. Like that on this lecture slide, um, we've got written down as issues that we were talking about in December, COVID-19, climate crisis, housing crisis, national health service, work-life balance. But obviously since December, we've had Russia invade Ukraine. Generational injustice in the form of work, the cost of living, wages. Oh my God, getting my wages, the national insurance and tax deductions, whoa. We do talk about that a lot on the show actually, like I am a millennial, t so is Gen X. Bit old. <laughs> But, like, the consistencies, like, between generations, but also the things, the gaps between us in terms of the older generation is, is, is one that we talk about a lot. It's a really hard one to square the circle of because I think that one of the things, we've had a, a guy, a, a really cool sociologist on the show before called Stephen Roberts that talks about how the concept of generation is used as a way to present some kind of societal progression and what he means by that is actually we need to focus on what the consistencies are and the consistencies are that there are still loads of working class poor people there's still global capitalism there's still gender-based violence like all these things and sometimes when we use generation like it it can seem like we're talking about things in terms of like gradual progress but actually there's a lot of more consistencies that are actually more important than generation and I have to push back against that all the time because I'll be like old people taking my stuff not getting me 
<laughs> which is not okay. Um, you were talking about transphobia. Yeah, very, very important issue. And we always want to make it um, clear on this show that we are very much always already in solidarity with our trans siblings. And yeah, you cannot understand the rise of the far right without understanding the rise of those groups of people as well. So if I was to kind of group all the things that we spoke about, there's a kind of a general sense of, of a threat that, that your our way of life, our understanding of the world is under, is under some kind of threat. And so this has been almost like an, a natural reaction. Maybe this is why people are kind of grasping to conspiracy, right? How do you make sense of a world that seems senseless? And you're seeing that maybe this is the birth pangs of a new kind of way of understanding. We have issues of gender that people don't really understand and identity that people don't understand. We have the threat of, of actual kind of being wiped out from nuclear war with a third, with a, of a third world war. We have the idea that we can't eat, the idea that we might be going re reverting back to what the West consider being primitive, underdeveloped, we can't feed our kids. So this whole idea, the struggle of the long 19th century, the idea of fighting for your rights, we can't even work, we can't exist. Then we have the far right coming back. At the start of the 90s, we had the triumphalism, the idea that the end of history, the West had won. But the idea that these things can come back is, it seems regressive. And that goes against the idea of what the Enlightenment is. The Enlightenment is the idea of progress always going forward. But now we seem to be going back. So this doesn't make sense of our understanding of the world. So this is why we seem to be in crisis all the time, speaking of the word crisis. But maybe it's just, maybe we need to take a step back and think, we have the answers, right? We spent a long time, there's hundreds, there's years of research. We have the answers, but we have, do we have the will to put these things forward? And this may be... Or do we have the power to put things forward? This and is just it, man. segue into one of the comments that I didn't address, talking about Palestine, like, in terms of the hierarchy of oppression, a hierarchy of whose voice is heard, a hierarchy of who is allowed to assert their freedoms like you can't understand that struggle without looking at these these things and the exclusions that are very much happening right now as we sit here with regards to the treatment of um palestinians and how we are able to or not able to within the um academic setting talk about these things we're very we're fortunate and try and use our platform to talk about the struggle um, of, Palest of Palestinians when we can because we are an independent podcast and we are um, we can do things in that way. But as as um, as was shared, like it's it, it isn't it isn't a difficult thing to grasp. But unfortunately, um, there is. But remember, I think I think what we always have to carry that some people's responses. Are not in good faith. Sometimes not in good faith, but also not just drawn, they're not rational. Sometimes they're drawn emotionally. Yeah. And I think what we sometimes do, we separate emotion from rationality. Some, they're, they're together. You get an emotional response which drives their so-called rational response, you know? But so, I guess, the, but then to you, my provocation there would be mm. to you, like, who's allowed to be rational? Uh, who's again, allowed to... And those, those issues yeah, don't yeah, matter. Yeah, they, they, yeah. Um, so we've got agree there. Do you see many people agreeing? I, right, I'm going to say here... And it might be because I've, I've been off work for a few months. But I do see a lot of people agreeing. But I know I'm in various echo chambers. Like, I'm, I'm an academic, for God's sake. Like, I, I don't... I, I'm around you guys. Like, and we're having intellectual conversations about big issues, local issues, global issues all the time. But I do think, like, when it comes down to it, we do all agree on a lot of things. But the way the media or politicians are able to generate this constant reel of divide and rule enables us to very much, enables us to put forward an argument that we don't all agree on lots of things. And I think that, that is one of the, that's one of the things that sheds but also eradicates possibilities of hope. But I'm always happy to be challenged on that because I think there are a lot, there are a lot of dickheads um, <laughs> and like, there are a lot of people that want to just be harmful for the sake of harm's sake yeah. or that feel like, no, society should have a hierarchy. Society, there are the winners and losers and that's just how things are. Some people work harder than others is a big one that people like to interject. So <laughs> In today's environment, in today's context, because it's so polarised, no but, no, but that's my point. Mm. Like, is it actually? Is it actually? I think if you're looking at your message boards and your, the internet, yeah. because, 
because the internet is now for the kind of democratization of voices. So there's multiple voices, and there's everyone's got and bots and bots, and, but it's all different. Everyone's got a different view, right? Yeah. So when essentially what what you do what do you do? You find people that agree with you. So mm. the echo chambers are naturally occurring. So you find your group, mm. and essentially because we find groups, we coalesce around our groups, and these groups are sometimes diametrically opposed. Mm. They always make noises, right? But there's, like you said, there's, on the internet, mm. just like society, there's lots of people that agree. Mm. But the, what you're always going to pay attention to is the people that make the most noise, mm. the people that disagree. And, and, what, and that's what news is, right? Mm. News is the bad stuff. No one wants good stuff. Good stuff happens all the time, mm. but we want the bad stuff because it's easy. It's very easy. But then, like, I guess my constant sort of checking myself on this is mm. like, I don't want to position what I'm saying as apathetic or in any way not serious about the serious issues of political polarisation, mm. um, disengagement, disenfranchisement, all those things are really important. But like, it's like what Stuart Hall says to us, like we have to take the things that they, we have to take, Sorry. we have to take the things that they can't take away from us. And you gave the example about the rise of the far right, which we talk about a lot on the show because Obviously, we're, we're not fans of the far right, but looking at what they, they're able to do, what Tisa, you talk a lot about, is they're able to coalesce around quite small matters and they disagree on quite a lot of things, but then on, on some particulars, they agree and they're able to form the solidarity. What's, what's interesting about the far right is how it's developed, especially as, as we see it now in the form of the alt-right. So... In the 60s, they've gone out of the way to kind of copy the, couch, the countercultural movements of the 60s and use the same tactics. So if you, uh, there's a far-right um, website called The Daily Stormer, and it's, he's the head of a guy, he's, his name's Andrew Anglin. So he spent a lot of time researching the counter-movements of the 1960s, what the communists used, what the, what the Jewish movement used, and to use the same and tactics. The and the women's movement. Sorry, and the women's movement, to use those tactics to gain traction. He spent a lot of time studying the power of culture and language and how that could affect people, how that move forward. So he spends a lot of time making memes and he realises that a meme is an effective way to get your message across, to shift, uh, uh, to anyone, to any sociologist here, the Overton window, to shift what was... No, I think, we had, I think we had an Overton window um, comment there, yeah. <laughs> so, so they've spent a lot of time doing this. So principle ties into what what podcasting is right so these are voices from the margins that are able to influence the mainstream and they've done that quite successfully so you look if you look at something like brexit if you speak to most people prior to 2016 most people and again i'm speaking anecdotally if i speak to my friends they use the word sovereignty they wouldn't even know what it was but after 2016 everyone knows what it is well not what it is but they use the word so you can see how the margins influenced the mainstream in ways that you wouldn't really kind of anticipate. I'm going to give you a provocation here, T. Go, so the use of the margins <laughs> around an understanding of the far right, <laughs> I think, is incomplete. The reason why I say that is because Alan was talking about how the right is, has been able to position itself as centrist when actually it is still just right and or far right, particularly if you're looking at like immigration policies, etc. We can't say that the far right is marginal, whatever has been, it's just been mainstream, thinking about Iranian and Aaron here. Like if we think about the extreme right, mm -hmm. then maybe yeah. But if we think about like if we're talking about the context of Europe, it's just thinking about how the, it's the evolution of global capitalism, isn't it? Like it's about power and actually like Right. It is politically the people that have been in power the last sort of 60 years probably would would be like right so what i would say is pretty I, right I, wing I, I would agree with you i would say but those ideas so for example the idea of a all-white policy from australia is part of the okay, government fine. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. but so the idea of a white replacement theory that's definitely a far-right idea that's become more mainstream but it has an existing idea that exists in the mainstream too right but i bet these people in their like dining halls and whatever yeah, yeah, think, yeah. like believe like but do you know what i mean it's just but, <laughs> believe but, that they've just got more people now saying it but it's those ideas that have become explicit right and yeah explicit and in a way that prior to 2016 like, before I'd done my research, prior to 2016, people weren't speaking in, in those terms. So it's just like the idea, this course around, there's always been Islamophobia that exists in the mainstream. Yeah. But this, there's this particular brand of Islamophobia that's come from the margins that's now very mainstream. Yeah. The way of talking about people from the Middle East. Yeah. Some of the languages that you would see, in the, I would see in the far-right messaging boards, 
it's become common discourse. So I wouldn't say influence, it's having a dialogue with the mainstream. So it's always existed, but yeah. it's a two-way dialogue. And I guess it's, what, a multi, it's a multi-directional yeah, dialogue. Yeah, and so. actually, to be fair, I think it kind of threads through um, sort of Steve Bannon's idea of wearing the racist badge of honour. It's like, yeah. so, well, it's my freedom to be so like point, this way. So yeah. they, they appeal to things, and like I said, so this is why people shouldn't separate emotion from rationality, because they appeal to things that are existing in there. But so they tease it out. So Steve Bannon... Steve Bannon will use the same tactics that, uh, that Bin Laden would use. So Steve Bannon would reference the Treaty of Westphalia. So unless you know your European history, you wouldn't know. Or Bin Laden would reference, again, World War I and World War II, and very, very kind of obscure things. Mm. But, this is a saint, and, but these two are on the opposite sides, right? Mm. But they will reference these things from the margins, and they become mainstream. And then we start to see sort of the threaded in of some of the comments from participants here on, like, thinking about, like... Um, masculinity, patriarchy, um, gender-based violence, like all those things, and it all starts to, yeah, weave. weave. And and it's quite interesting, like, so some of that stuff, again, the idea around masculinity, again, the idea from the right that a man should be a man, this kind of out, this kind of incel kind of look. So if you're looking at um, the stuff that happened this weekend, this weekend gone with, with Angela Rayner and that comment, now, the question would be, the question I ask myself, why would the guy even write that? It seems outrageous, but he understands the zeitgeist that somewhere out there it will resonate with people. And it has done. It's resonated with people. I was and literally coming back on an aeroplane yesterday from holiday, and now I, could, oh, I overheard guys talking about on the, tra- on the plane being like, well, why can't we, why can't we, why can't we say that? And why can't we say right. that? Yeah. So, and, so, and like, like, so when we talk about it, and I, and I say, and I go to, and I go to the gym, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm meeting guys, and it, some of the views that they have would almost seem backwards, but it resonates with people. And this, and when I'm trying to say, where did, where did this come from? Mm. And so when you ask them directly, anecdotally, they might say, we've got a Facebook. Mm. And I said, well, where did the message come from? It came from my, mom, my mate's mum. Mm. So it's, the message seems believable because it's come from a person that they trust. Mm. So there's an emotional attachment to it. And it's, they're not really thinking through it rationally, right? Oh, God, right, we've got to get on some hope, too. We've got to get on some hope. Right, 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 so good. right, right. So good. We've got a bit off of police and the crisis. I guess we can talk a little bit about, in terms of what we've just been talking about here, like, if you're not familiar with this book, then you definitely need to be, particularly if you're doing politics, sociology, international relations, police and the crisis, mug in the state, and law and order, 1978. It has never been more applicable I don't think like how does the state keep control of the masses mainly through ideological force we would argue so that and they argue in this book that is in relation to the media the government and the police so and the, and the repressive state apparatus as well so it's very sort of a Marxist analysis of how people like Politicians like Boris Johnson, prime ministers like Boris Johnson, would probably win a huge majority again next week. How is that able to happen whilst I've just got my paycheck and like the national insurance is like on the floor? We've got child poverty through the roof. I think we've got the biggest wealth divide in Europe now. Like, how is all of this possible? And that he would still probably keep his position as prime minister. And this is what this book does really well. It shows you through a combination of legislation, of ideology, of rhetoric, of divide and rule, of scapegoating, of racism, of classism, how all these things coalesce into a hegemonic condition and that being the the public consent to this, the public consent to it. And I also think it's, I think for me when I read it, Obviously, like on first read for the book, it, what kind of jumps out of it? It's a good history book, right? It, it, it kind of encapsulates a time in a time in the UK that you, on reading it, you wouldn't really understand, especially if you're if you're not an ethnic minority. Mm-hmm. Even as an ethnic minority, mm-hmm. I, I didn't understand it. And then when you start reading it as a as a kind of political philosophy, it's it's powerful. It's a very powerful book, man. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's move on to some hope. So this morning. We were looking at the news and we wanted to talk a little bit about um, the Caribbean in terms of thinking about the Enlightenment and thinking in terms of thinking about resistance. Um, we talk a lot on the show um, about the Haitian Revolution and how that needs to be understood um, as a really important um, part of history in terms of resistance, in terms of us not being, as in um, 
black people not being, we're not, our history is not just embroiled in slavery, our history is also in resistance, but also how that relates to things that are happening now. And we've got here the Earl and Countess of Wessex have been urged to use their diplomatic influence to get reparatory justice for Antigua and Barbuda. Um, I don't know if anyone's seen any of the coverage of the royals in the Caribbean, but I, it's, I think it's really just shown how out of touch these people are. Like some of the imagery and like thinking, just thinking that we're dickheads. Like we're not, we're not. Okay. I think that you're really seeing a shift in how people understand and make sense of the royal family. And I think that that is a, a commonality, which is kind of unexpected. And this could be as Stuart Hall's glimmer of hope here. Like I, I think, I think, I think, I think, right, for, let's, let's go back a step. I think, they're kind of looking at the West Indies to understand the relationship between the UK and the West Indies and understand that these are, in a sense, the laboratories of capitalism, mm. the laboratories of colonialism. The, the kind of tactics they try out there, they will bring back home and use them here. And so you, there's lots of literature on this, and, but it's understanding that, this, that in, these space, in these spaces, in these margins, they were they was the very things that we're talking about, resistance and hope. If you spoke to someone in 1832 and said to them they will be free one day, they, they, something they couldn't understand. And if you, if you speak to them in 2022 and thinking that these little islands are standing up to what used to be a global power, your former colonial master, that seems almost absurd. I spoke to an old man the other day and he said he'd never thought in his lifetime he would see Britain in such a position. To certain people, certain generations, it's, it was unthinkable. To us now, we question everything mm. and ironically this is the spirit of the of the enlightenment it's the spirit of what Kant says dare to know we dare to know we're questioning everything but this is not what was meant to happen we were meant to just do what you're told right you go to school part of going to school quite part of education was you learn to follow orders you fit your place so when we're talking about knowledge and epistemology knowledge from certain universities is valued more right so knowledge from Oxford is valued more than in most universities around the, around the world. So we're questioning all these things, and it wasn't meant to be that way. So what happens, what happens next? And this is the exciting thing, right? This mm. is the hope. What happens next? The possibility of... Listen, they're daily numbers. <laughs> <laughs> T, tell us about Demara the Demerara Rebellion. The Demer so, again, so this is a... Can you, can you, how do you pronounce it? Demerara. So it's Demerara. 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 Yeah. It's like the sugar. You don't go Sainsbury's, you see Demerara sugar. So it's, it's a slave up, it's a slave rebellion that gets put down. But what the most interesting thing is, is the idea of this was the, was the largest producer of income for the British, for the British, for the um, British Empire at the time. So this is 1823 and it's in Guyana, so, the uprising. So in 1807, Jacob rees speaks about this quite a lot and Britain are quite proud of it, they abolished the slave trade. That was the, 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 so it's in the language. The trade means like with other countries, and they'll go around enforcing that, but they didn't enforce the slave trade in between the colonies, right? So at the time, Britain had about eight, 800,000 slaves in the colonies in, to in total. So we were making insane amounts of money, and it didn't stop the slave trade in between islands. So we can sell people from Grenada to Trinidad, Trinidad to Jamaica, but we couldn't do Trinidad to Brazil for example. The trade still kept going. In fact, we formed what they called, it was called the West India Interest. The West India Interest was a coalition of uh, bankers, planters, insurers, basically the British establishment. They campaigned vigorously not to have any emancipation of slaves because it made so much money. It made, I think people don't, I think people misunderstand or well, truly don't understand how much wealth the sugar and other, other commodities generated for the UK. To, make, to give you some kind of understanding, we made so much money, we had to make new concepts to understand how much money we were making. So in finance, there's a concept called the time value of money, i.e. that a pound today is not going to be a pound tomorrow. But we didn't have the understanding of that, so we have to create new concepts because that's how much money we made. To put that in context, imagine after World War II, we have to make concepts to understand this new world we live in. For example, the idea of the displaced person. That doesn't exist until after 1945. This money we're making from this enterprise is so different. 
It's about understanding the relationship we have with these places. So this colony was the place where Britain made the most money, but yeah. it was one of the biggest upright. What happened well, after the uprising? So, like I said, it's not about. It's more about the people there. So yeah. the the owners, one of the big owners of that of the plant on the plantation where they had the revolt, is John Gladstone. He's the father of William Gladstone, right? So you see how deep. Who are they? William Gladstone is the, well, it's one of the big big states and one of the big prime ministers of the UK of the 19th century. So you see how closely tied the state is to this place and therefore tied to us. So therefore it's, 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 it's interplay. So it's what, it's what, it's what, what's true at all? Paul Gilroy speaks about the idea of roots, not, not the roots as in the tree roots, the roots of where you're going back and forth. And it's this back and forth thing that shows us the link between us. Mm. So the link between the margins and the center, mm. the metropole and the colony. And this is it's that interplay. And so where this ties in with our podcast is that we're trying to be that interface between, in our case, the margin and academia, but in most cases, the margin and the mainstream. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. I, know, I don't ever want to do a disservice to slave uprisings in comparison to modern-day politicians <clears throat> in Antigua saying, like what are you doing royal family but it is really i think it is a pretty cool historical parallels mm. to make like and just showing that resistance in different ways but yeah you know i never want to sort of do a disservice to but slave uprisings and what that that physical act of your body putting your body out there and yeah but like you said earlier when we were talking about being hopeful so in 1807 we had the abolition and then you, you finally have the final uh, emancipation in the 1830s if you spoke to anyone at that time, it, it almost seemed impossible. Mm. Impossible. Given the forces ar- arrayed against you, you had the British state. And remember, this is the British state at its, at its prime. It has the most money. But it seemed almost impossible. Mm, mm, mm. But the impossible became possible because people had hope. Mm. And it was a broad coalition of people. So from the people who were enslaved to the people who were f- the abolitionists. Mm-hmm. So it's this broad coalition and, and they're constantly talking and the dialogue, and remember, this is from a different time, mm. but they still managed to do what we would see at that time impossible. So hope is something that should be central to people's, yeah, never, never Praxis. Really, yeah. That's the word. That's the word. <laughs> We've spoke loads. Does anyone want to say anything? Um, just what's recently been said about like abolition, but I feel like it's quite reflective in like contemporary society and abolishing the police mm-hmm. um, with Sisters and Cook, withdrawing consent, child cue. We're at breaking point now where we're like, we don't want the Met Police. Like we don't want it. We don't want it in our schools. We don't want it anywhere. Mm-hmm. We're looking for new like alternatives now, when it comes to policing. And I think that's quite like reflective of what's just been said. And Anthes, in your lecture in international relations, I was wondering if you could discuss the idea of denial within the society, the idea that people do not want to see the problems and who is responsible for it and the idea of either you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And maybe if you could link that with the ongoing issue of fake news. So I think everything links together because we want to believe sometimes things that we know that are not true, but we lie to ourselves a lot. So we don't have to face the reality. So if you could link that with how the British society is behaving these days in relation to the migration bill, um, the issues around democracy and transparency and so on. That would be great. Thank you. Just a quick comment on echo chambers. It was mentioned earlier. I don't think that uh, the echo chambers that already existed are simply populated with the same number of participants. Instead, rather, we find people who may have been relatively ambivalent about various topics sort of funneled in to echo chambers. Uh, obviously, you know, this is partly due to certain types of algorithms and so on, but it does seem to exacerbate um, the sort of levels of ignorance that are required to, you know, live in either denial or just um, conflict, well, confuse contrarianism with critical thinking. A contrarianism is like my kryptonite, like as in, uh, yeah, thank you for Alan for bringing up contrarianism, it does my head in. Um, <laughs> we spoke a bit about the police, abolition and the police, there's some, obviously some amazing, amazing existing scholarship, but also some amazing practice that's been going on locally and globally. I think it's really important to highlight, but also gives us hope. We've got on the screen now, um, some organisations who've got a logo for Sisters Uncut. 
we've got um, UK Black Pride, we've got the Good Law Project, we've got Extinction Rebellion, Black Lives Matter, like we've got um, Drill Minister. <laughs> um, what, we t- what we try and talk about on the podcast is broad coalitions of people because even within some of these organisations that are on the screen now, like there's people within them that I do not feel like I agree with on a lot of things. But in terms of thinking about ourselves as broad coalitions that have the basic principle of looking after, supporting the most marginalised in society or looking for ways to find liberation for the most, for the masses, looking for reparative justice, I do think a lot of us um, agree. And these are sort of your more local um, based organisations here. Um, I think that... Uh, the example of Sisters Uncut is really important. Um, they've been doing some excellent work nationally on um, resisting the police um, crime. Is it the police crime and sentencing bill? Or police sentencing and crime bill? Police crime and sentencing bill. Um, and the immigration bill as well. Um, talking about policing and removing consent um, from being um, police rather than ju- not just ab- ab- abolishing, removing our consent to be police. Also really want to make sure we do a shout out to um, kids of colour um, who have been leading the No More Police in Schools campaign. Like, What's really important about these issues though is that we don't see them as presentists. Like police have always been in schools, but what we're seeing now, there are much more people coalescing around ideas and movements in ways that goes beyond just physically being at a protest. You can engage and show solidarity digitally. You can do it in so many different ways now. We can create so many other forms of international solidarity, which is really important, but sometimes that can detract from what has existed before and that's a tension that we try and we do try our best to keep conscious of on the show is that we're not erasing the work of of activists organizers scholars of the past but where we stand on their shoulders the point about denial and i think is a really interesting one we've obviously seen the sort of mainstream or the mainstreamed idea of kind of like white privilege i think that's kind of run its course a little bit there's lots of people that were very skeptical about um this concept as it evolved i mean we're very much fans of and working in the tradition of like people like david rodiger and ron ware in terms of thinking about whiteness one thing that i would like to say is more focusing on rather than talking about denial is more talking about possibility and those that were maybe not awake that have now awoken whether that is just a, in a very small way or very, a very meaningful way and the way they've or the way they've changed their lives i think is really important to focus on so i give an example of um the renewed black lives matter um risings in 2020 mm-hmm. yeah, 2020 we talk on the show like sort of anecdotally about although structurally we have not really seen um, that much change. Um, we had Gary Young on the show, and he spoke about what Black Lives Matter did was a pollination. It planted a seed in across the world, basically, locally and globally, in how people think and understand race and class. It might not necessarily have always demonstrably had an impact or changed things, but you can't take that away, what happened. Like, we have never, like, in, obviously, I, I'm, only, I'm only 30 and whatever, so I've not, ex- I've not experienced that many things, but there are things that happened, conversations that happened that refute and are in resistance to a denialism cannot be taken away. So instead of kind of engaging in how people deny structural inequalities, I am trying to find ways to focus on the people that we are taking with us in a very, in it's very new um, and we're still trying to work out what that's actually going to look like long term. I think for me, if you again to kind of group uh, kind of those questions together, it, I think what we have to ground any answer in is the understanding of power. Europe has a long tradition of denying, denying stuff, misunderstanding power relations. So if we go back to 
like medieval England, when we have social and economic problems, they blame the Jews, right? One of the first groups they blame internally is the Jews, even though they bring them over to do a particular job. When it starts going wrong, they blame them and the other of them, and they remove them. Mm. There seems to be an issue about power. But again, what we start doing in relation with the police or in relation with guides online is looking at understanding how this power is kind of exercised. And some people feel very uncomfortable of how power is exercised. Being a man, patriarchy has allowed me to exercise power in a certain way. And sometimes that way makes me feel uncomfortable. Now, do I feel uncomfortable in my uncomfortableness? This is what we have to start dealing with, to be able to sit in that feeling. And that feeling sometimes can make you feel horrendous. But it's that process, that's the process we're in, that's the hope, where you have that dialogue with yourself. We spoke about earlier about dealing with your own bias, being reflexive. Sitting in that is uncomfortable. And what happens in that when your people are uncomfortable? In those echo chambers, when you sit there for the first time, you discover something new. So when you read your first theories that blows your mind, when you first read Marx, it, you become a zealot. And you sit there and you look, you're free. So you start looking for people that sound the same. And because you, you, you understand there's a certain power there, right? And so it's about understanding that flow. And, when you start looking at it, when you read a bit of Foucault, you understand that power flows back and forward. So once you have power, you want to freeze it in place. So people look to hold that, and you start denying other people because you want to hold that power. So as an academic, that's what academics do, right, sometimes. We sit in the academy, we use big, long words, we get a PhD, and I speak to my own echo chamber. There's a sense of power to that, right? I, I really like that, being uncomfortable in your uncomfortableness, T. And just coming back to the points about hope earlier and, like, what are the things that the people, they, those in power or those that seek to divide us or marginalise or gain capital from consistently, what are, the, what are the things that they can't take away from us and we're going to sort of chime in or insert some bell hooks here? You cannot assume that society, and these are, these, this, is, this is very much in the tradition of bell hooks here, so you cannot assume a society has love because it says it's loving. Love has to be something demonstrable. Love has to be purposeful. Love has to be actively sought and actively pursued and actively engaged with. Just because I say I love you is not enough as Bell Hooks would say, like saying you want to, saying you care about something, saying you want to be a certain way, saying you want to look after people is not enough. We have to think about this every day and how we're engaging. Um, and we also have to recognize, as Tiso was saying um, about his own experience, and I do I try my best to do this with myself as well, how we are, we have the capacity to reproduce lovelessness. We have the capacity to be unloving. So to be loving in a society which has so much marginalisation, so much racism, has so much global inequality, is a radical act, but it's not one that was, is without reach. I think talking about love, which I think a lot, a lot of people are doing, um, a, lot, a lot more people are doing now, because we're understanding that our, whether it's a result of the pandemic or decades and decades of inequality, austerity, like our interpersonal relations are fractured. Our interpersonal relations and our lived experiences are not something which can um, create complete liberation, but they are something that we have to invest in. And this shouldn't be, again, this shouldn't be read, heard or understood as some kind of political apathy or an engagement in liberalism. Because to be radically, to be loving in a radical way is the antithesis of being liberal, basically. Because to be liberal is to be, um, is to be loveless, because it's to accept things as they are. And if we accept things as they are, then we will not have love. So um, we very much, again, like another tradition of ours of surviving society is to engage in black feminist thought. So on the on the screen now, it says love looking after and centering the most marginalised society, picking aside, rejecting apathy, centering love, making a difference in the material, emotional well-being of all. And we haven't actually said, it, and I don't think enough about materiality here, but we spoke about um, emotion, but understanding how the material, how what we have access to affects our capacity to be in solidarity with each other is really important. Because they fly in the face of what we understand, because we deal in the scientism of the Enlightenment, we're dealing with 
the kind of materiality of capitalism, it's hard to understand how do I interact with these things on a day-to-day -day basis? How do I do this on a day-to-day -day basis? And what does that look like? What, is, what, what does love look like in every day? Like, it, it sounds kind of mad, right? Because mm -hmm. the scientism of the Enlightenment tells you otherwise to be cold, to be rational, to be efficient, to be instrumental. So, like, again, to a few socials, like the kind of Weberian notion of the world, this is, this is what you're used to, right? That instrumental rationality. But to have that radical idea of being with people, it's uncomfortable, like I said, mm. it's uncomfortable because it's not your day to day. Mm. Like, a, like we were discussing earlier, in, in big cities like London, it's, it's impersonal. I don't really want to speak to people. Mm. I want to speak to people on the most efficient level. They're almost like a machine. So the most reductive thing I've seen of that is a human being as a sign. Mm. It's not, I don't see him as a human being anymore. I see him as a sign. And that, that says something, right? That's how far we've become. I see a person as a sign. That's how loveless we've become, yeah. yeah. And just on that, um, T, a uh, quote from Bell Hooks here in All About Love. Schools for love do not exist. Everyone assumes that we will know how to love instinctively, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. We still accept that the family is the, pri is the primary school for love. Those of us who do not learn how to love among family are expected to experience love in romantic relationships. However, this love often eludes us. So again, just coming back to the things we've been talking about at the beginning of this lecture, so hope and solidarity, what we say and what Bell Hook says, what many other um, theorists, when you get down to the nitty-gritty of it, of, of black feminism in particular, say that if we do not have this, if we do not have the basic respect and love for each other, then you can't get the hope and solidarity. Um, you don't necessarily have to... There's a difference between kind of liking, I think, each other and being loving of a people or people. And I think that that is... I don't necessarily have the words to describe what that is. I think it's a practice and a practice and process. And I think we'll be keep having to keep working out what that is, particularly as society keeps changing and evolving. But it, it, it has to be purposeful and it's not easy to do. I think what we have in, in most Western societies, what Bauman talks about is... Um, we tolerate each other, but when he talks about toleration, it's a form of indifference, right? So we won't say we're outrightly nasty to people, but we're indifferent. That means we just don't care, and not caring, and we can see the impact of what what not caring does. Hey, this, the, you're, you're, you're quite, you're like... Man, reads a lot of books. No, I know, but they're really like flowing with, with the quotes <laughs> that we've got coming up. So, on that note, yeah. a generous heart is always open, always ready to receive our going and coming. In the midst of such love, we need never fear abandonment. This is the most precious gift true love offers, the experience of knowing we always belong. Yeah. Oh. Boom. Amazing project, organisation, forefront project. Love as praxis. So what does love as praxis look like? So I think, well, we think, many think, it can definitely um, look like activism, and activism that looks to generate reparative... Um, forms of justice, which looks to protect the most marginalised. And we've got the Forefront Project here is, um, as an example of this. The Forefront Project is a member-led youth organisation empowering young people and communities to fight for justice, peace and freedom. So their work centres healing and transformative justice whilst directly challenging the UK's um, addiction to criminalisation, policing and prisons. This approach has been shaped and influenced by best practice from around the world. By amplifying their members' voices and advocating for a holistic approach to build peace, they have transformed the way in which society understands how to support young people who have been affected by violence and shape the agenda on how to tackle the systemic causes of it. So this goes into your abolitionist tradition as well. Like, what does transformative justice look like? Or what does healing, understanding... Um, look like in the face of a society built around structural violences? Well, I, I guess what the provocation on that is that when we say these things to people, it's pushing people to what, what is the unknown. It right? pushes me every day. Every day I'm like, what? So someone that like, harmed me in a really like, awful way, like, I should think more about a transformative justice. That's really hard to do. Because you've been conditioned by the, your environment, exactly. right? Exactly. So what this kind of talks about is the idea of dreaming, right? The ability to dream be beyond. Some people argue that this is one of the kind of casualties. We have been able to, we, can't, we, can't, we, we are unable to see beyond what we know. But that's not always been the case. 
So we have the inability to dream. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, so when you come to school, the schools, but they say chase your dreams, but your dreams will be a kind of neoliberal dream, right? Without realizing it, you're following that pattern. But the idea to dream beyond that has become almost impossible. And so when we confront you with the idea of being a radical or abolitionist, it, the first thing, you, first thing you are is hesitant because you think, well, what, what is that? What does that look like? Mm. And what, well, get rid of everything. Yeah, get rid of everything because that's what, that's what it seems to mean. Mm. But it's just a different way of thinking, right? And living and, and doing living. and being. And le- tea and lover. Yeah, so young people are cynical about love. I think everyone's cynical about love, to be fair, Belle. Um, ultimately, cynicism is the great mask of the disappointed and betrayed heart. We're just finishing here on a quote from Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which everyone needs to read. For me, a revolutionary is a man or a woman who is learning every day in the permanent process of doing things in order to know. One of the virtues of the revolutionary educator is precisely humility. If we are not humble, we cannot be educators. I love that. I love that quote. Sick. Sick. Um, Guys, does anyone have any provocations? We love a provocation. Please disagree with us on something. Thank you. I haven't really formulated it, but I really like your podcast as part of, like, um, you know, the way in which we're learning in everyday ways and lots from lots of different places. So I guess I was just wanting to ask you a bit more about where you see, like, the, f- the future of education, because I feel like, I, you know, I love education and I, I, I work in university, but I used to do teach in some adult education, and I feel like the government over the last 10 years or more has been like steadily eroding all these different forms of education, not only further and higher education, but all the different other ways. So I guess just from your experience of the podcast and all the people you meet, and I, and I love listening to it, and it's such a great resource, uh, just like your thoughts on education. Talking about echo chambers, um, have you thought about inviting to your podcast people that sit on the opposite side of your ideas also being quite provocative how do you actually given that we're talking about education how do you try and educate those who do not want to be educated so one thing that i've seen over the past decades is a growing number of students who very validly challenge you in a classroom that's very welcome that's always great but then refuse to accept specific realities uh, that can be objectively or you know evidenced. So how do you actually? Because you know, in their view of the world, that does not exist, so that is not possible. So how do you try and actually bridge the gap and show them specific reality, specific visions? Yeah, I'm Jack. I'm a final year international relations and politics student here at Northumbria, and I'm just wondering, sort of going back to when you were talking about uh, if people agree with each other and like the whole polarization thing. Do you think sort of like being a bit topical as well? Do you think the potential takeover of Twitter, could that be sort of like something that could potentially throw a bit of a spanner in this works of, in terms of like, you either need to be on one side or the other? Or, because obviously I've been reading interviews with Elon Musk where he's been saying that he's trying to be a bit more open to free speech and there's been rumours about Donald Trump being allowed back onto Twitter now. Could this sort of like, this whole like platform of free speech, is it almost like, can it get to a sort of dangerous point really? Is that like, Obviously, it's the, it's good to sort of be able to, cha- to challenge people's views, but like, is there a line that really needs to be drawn? Thank you so much for that question. It's something that we think about all the time. Um, we um, actually wrote our first um, published article in Soundings about this, um, and it's about love, hope, and solidarity in times of crisis. But um, thinking about dialogical knowledge production, um, so Patricia Hill Collins, thinking about sociological podcasting um, as a form of podcasting which is in the tradition of live sociology which is a Les Back and Nermal um, Puar's um, concept and the reason why I coalesce some of these ideas together is we're very unclear or uncertain as to whether what we are doing at Surviving Society is a force for good force for good, not necessarily bad, or a force for something which intensifies um, issues of um, intense marketisation of um, higher education. So, like, is it, is it more good, is it, is, it, is, it more, is it a net positive, or is it something that's contributing to something that's really causing a lot of issues within education more broadly, um, within society and within the UK context? 
Um, so what we talk about in that paper is the possibilities of things like sociological podcasts and the things about surviving society is that it opens up um, spaces within um, disciplines where our voices, for example, um, have been left out or not seen as a priority. It sort of leans into notions of the decolonial curriculum as well, um, not just because myself and Tisa are black people, but because we run the show in a way that tries to decenter ourselves from it, um, but also um, includes and has guest hosts from um, the Global South um, and tries to run it in a way that doesn't replicate um, the sector. Um, that is very much hierarchised. All that being said, this has become quote-unquote trendy now. Um, why is that an issue? It's an issue because when something becomes, um, when something becomes profitable um, within, when, and is in relation to education, um, these things lose their power, they lose their authenticity, they lose their capacity to... I think inspire people for change and actually become co-opted and we really very much try and resist that these things within our everyday of producing the podcast but we know for a fact that we are contributing to some things within this, our sector which are, are damaging to students and staff. What we try not to reproduce is the neoliberal logics that drive well, most things right so one of the questions we keep we kept we get we get asked whenever we talk about the podcast and it applies to university settings is the idea of growth the idea of kpis the idea of moving things forward putting profit first and so creative creativity and all those things suffer things like education knowledge knowledge becomes commercialized yeah when the idea of knowledge it should be knowledge is it's power power right but it exists mm -hmm. everywhere right so but the idea that knowledge has a value and, and you can put a price tag on it it becomes a problematic. So we, as far as we can, we try to kind of challenge that and resist that. So when we're talking about our podcast in terms of education, it's not, we try not to make it a vertical thing. It's a horizontal thing to kind of lift as many people up, broaden the voice from the academy. So the academy is a very narrow space and we want to reach a wider base. So we want to talk to our friends, our, our mums, our dads about stuff that's important, stuff that they understand too, that they feel but we can explain to them. So we, we're, we're that interface between the academy and... Yeah. I don't want to say the street. No, no. The people, <laughs> so, but people within... within, a, within a, <laughs> we talk about it being within and beyond the academy. And I think this was mentioned actually before in terms of um, resisting like contrarianism and ideas that anyone... Um, knowledge is whatever any, anyone wants it to be. We're very much of... Um, bell hooks's school of thought here and that we have to defend the intellectual like we're not a huge we're not a massive massive part of the of fighting for freedom but we're in it we are a part of it we are an important part of it and we have to reassert or resist stupid michael gove's idea of we're tired of experts like we don't we need to very much be in resistance of that but we are part of Margin, like marginal um, knowledge production or marginal education, which is adopted by some people in a way that says, well, it's a free, I'm a free thinker, freedom of ideas, freedom of knowledge, like I can pick and choose and knowledge is that I want. No, we have to be clear in our facts, figures and research. It's not, it is, it is about harnessing knowledge, harnessing knowledge production, but equally because of how how we are like how tiso and i we have to market our podcast like that in itself is a is a is an issue um but yeah it's it's, it's a difficult one but if we remain uncomfortable within it then hopefully we can do more good than bad but equally and also the other thing think about work-life balance like we don't make any we don't make any money from doing this podcast it's a labor of love it's it. a labor of love so in terms of thinking about the academy and in terms of thinking about how overworked academics are and workloads and we're producing something which makes people <coughs> want to promote their works even more are we creating another layer of work for people yes in some cases we are because we're telling them come market your book on our show like do you know, so it's, it's, it's uncomfortable, but there are some positives. The democratisation of political education is at the heart of what we do. 
um, and trying to constantly find ways to mitigate those 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 tensions is what we try and do every day. Cover all of them. So the idea of like having people on who have the opposing view, the idea of a kind of uh, a kind of polarized internet, and the idea of like the idea of people not wanting to learn. I guess for me they're all kind of linked. So the first thing I will kind of like flip it on its head. I think try and say you have to understand the terrain that we're operating. How the ideas get translated. We're assuming ideas get translated on an equal basis, like there's a flat terrain, and we can have the debate. Like the internet, the internet was a place of ideas, so we can exchange ideas freely. That's not the case. It's never been the case. Echo chambers are naturally occurring, right? So we discuss things in small circles. We, we never have this idea that we had this, it's kind of a misnomer about how ancient Greece worked, that you had this random like, philosopher, and he talks to people, and you have these free debates. That doesn't happen. History, hasn't, history shows you that ideas, not, they don't generate like that. They're not spread like that. So the idea of inviting someone else. So I used to want to invite Tommy Robertson onto the show. I'd be like, no. Which was, which was never going to work, right? But I, I, just, I, just like, I just like conflict. I like arguing with people. So for me, that's why I would have done it. But, but the idea of inviting someone, he's not going to change his mind. So it's not a debate in good faith. So you're going to have... So how and it's platforming ideas that people who are, have either got a lot of power already or feel marginalised by power are going to be like, yeah, I feel like that. And it detracts from the, the core issues yeah, and that like being... Said, you're going to, we're going to have a patriarchy, more, white supremacy, global capitalism. Like, we're going to have a more constructive uh, conversation with people who are experts in the field. So you're talking about technicalities. So we might broadly agree, but we disagree on the technicalities. But we'll have a more constructive conversation and we'll move things forward. So if you look at the if you look at the sciences, the natural sciences, that's how they progress. So this is how when people talk about let's have a debate with someone who is of an opposing view, how productive is that going to be? And so when you're talking about people who come to class and then all of a sudden that again it's kind of consistent with this thing. How am I convincing this person who doesn't really want to be convinced? But ironically that's whole that's the part of the whole enlightenment process, right? They're questioning you, challenging you, saying, well, sh is this version of the truth the truth? And this is what you kind of see right now with this growth of conspiracy. People are questioning everything, but this is wholly consistent with what you've been told to do at school. Question everything, dare to know, separate all, dare to know everything, right? Because it's the nature of play of our society. When you have the internet now, the internet is not a free space. This idea it was a free space, it was a myth. It just mirrors the reality that we see, so it's about power. I reckon I agree with about 75% of what you said there. I think that you have a bit more of a sympathetic view on it to me, because I think those people mm. want to be provocative, contrarian, hmm. at times hateful for the sake of it. And sometimes they are, and sometimes, it's, like I said, the, the more I look at it, the more I speak to them, like sometimes these people do come from that place. Sometimes they're coming from a place where that's what, that's what they truly believe. Mm. They, and it's mad to say that. When you meet someone who truly believes that, no. it seems almost impossible to me. But, but that's because I haven't lived their life. I haven't had their experience. I haven't had to navigate the world that had they navigated from their position. So it's trying, again, it's about that understanding, that listening. I don't want to listen to the fascists. <laughs> <laughs> so no, right. so no, when you're not listening, I'm not listening, so, so, so when I'm listening to the cultural products, the cultural artifacts that I'm absorbing on TV and the movement of politics, mm. that's a form of listening, you're listening to them, right? Mm. So what we're reacting to is effectively their voice at the moment. Yeah. So again, so when you're listening, not listening to the individual, but the, the direction of flow. Thank you Thank so you much, Northumbria Social Sciences students. That was amazing. Thank you so much, everyone, Thank for joining you. us. Thank you. <laughs> and we'll see you again next week. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.